Radio Drone. Uh, this is the Radio Drome you all knew was coming. You knew just because Brad took a week off last week that he'd be back and we'd have to pick up Brad's favorite decade, the 1990s, with right, the, Brad? With the 1990s. <laughs> you knew we had to pick up with that. And we also have the Marquis de Suede with us. Hello. But before that, if you guys want to travel back to the 1990s, adamandeve.com has lots of 90s porno. If you go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, you get... 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free mystery gift, and free shipping in the United States. And guys, this is the last week that that ad is applicable. The stuff you're going to get is going to change. So be listening for that next week. Mm. Just open the floodgates, the 1990s with movies. You know, I am, I'm of, I'm really of two minds about the 1990s. I am. The 1990s, I talk about the 1990s every now and then. You, me and you do on Radio Drome. I, I've made snide jokes and stuff like that before on, on some of my shows. The 90s is, it's a very, very easy decade to make fun of. It just, it just is. And I'm really, I'm more so talking about the attitudes of the 1990s. And, and I, I'm real, and, and when I'm, and I'm really talking about mid to late 90s here. There are things about the 1990s that I like. I, I certainly have some nostalgic value for the 90s because I was in high school in the 90s. So I certainly have sentimental value towards it in that regard. I certainly have nostalgia for it like that. When we were in the mid 90s and the early 90s, there was a lot of music I liked. And what I do like about the 90s, I liked I liked the start of the indie movie craze in the 90s. Miramax's rise, really. Miramax's rise. I, I like it was almost sort of like, hey, it's like indie new Hollywood part two. You know, I like that action movies were still action movies in the 90s. I did like that. I like that you still had the hard R action movie on a on a consistent basis. Same with horror films, even though a lot of those horror films weren't any good. A big problem that I have, though, is that a lot of what I don't like today stems from trends that started in the 1990s maybe the 1990s it wasn't as bad in the 1990s but stuff that i really don't like today is stuff that you can trace back to about the mid to late 1990s being that i came of age in the 90s you know from 10 to 20 you know that also has a lot of nostalgic value and it's where i really learned about what makes a good movie good and everything but in retrospect, a lot of the movies of the 90s, yeah, there are some great ones from the 90s. Every decade has their great movies, but there's more in the 90s that I hate than other decades. The way I look at it, weirdly enough, and, and I know this is going to be partially due to me wearing my nostalgia goggles, but uh -huh. the, the, like, the fashions, the trends, and the music in movies from the 1990s has not aged as well as the same things from the 1980s or the 1970s. And the did, ones that did age good in the 90s were movies that used music of a different decade. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the 90s were kind of a forgettable time, and I, I guess pop culture is too broad of a term, but certain aspects of pop culture, the 90s was it had more forgettable movies than the 80s did. It did, yeah. I I would say, but what I I what I at least still liked was there was there was still a lot of action films that I did like in the nineties. The nineties gave us some flicks that I, okay, The Rock, Face Off, Broken Arrow, stuff like that. You know, you still had flicks like that in the nineties. 
you are right, though, in saying that a large amount of them were, and I'm, I'm not counting those three that I just mentioned, because I like those movies a lot. And, and it's it's sort of like what I was saying about horror films, too. Yeah, horror films in the 90s, we, you know, we didn't have like the whole, like, oh, God, it's been cut down to a PG-13, at least to the extent that you do now. But with that being said, yeah, they were pretty forgettable. <laughs> Especially the post-Scream boom. Oh, oh yes. God. Yeah. 1996 destroyed horror. After Scream came out, and see, I didn't see Scream in the theater. Everyone told me this is such an amazing genre-busting movie. Fangoria was talking about it nonstop. Starlog was still around, and they were talking about it. And so I rented it, and my wife and I watched it, and we were like, this is terrible. Where is this genre-defining film that everyone else is seeing? I saw it in the theater. Uh... I and saw I it came, in the theater too. And like I there was I saw it like it had been out for a couple of weeks. My classmates were like, "Oh, dude, man, dude, dude, man, it's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen." So I go see it and I come back like, "Really assholes, really? That's one of the scariest movies you've ever freaking seen." Oh my god, they referenced Halloween. Oh, so scary. Well, see, when I saw it, I saw it at a friend's recommendation, and it was a friend that didn't really like horror films, and he's like, you gotta go see this movie Scream, it's a really interesting murder mystery. So that's what I went to it with the impression of, I'm like, wait, no, this is just a crappy slasher. It's as much as a freaking (laughs) murder mystery as any other slasher movie is. Like, any other slasher movie where you don't know who the killer is until the very end, it's as much of a murder mystery as freaking those, it doesn't make it a murder mystery. (laughs) why i went and saw it and i i yeah (laughs) i've had that i've had it i've had it described to me that way too here's one of my problems with scream it's not as much about scream to me scream was just a forgettable film that somehow caught the pop culture zeitgeist the worst thing was it spawns all the scream imitators they were actually just so much worse yeah, yes. yeah, and it also spo- to, to me, Scream just encompasses the whole that movie. It just and uh, it just encompasses the whole. I'm smarter than this genre attitude, you know. This whole like we're being really cynical about this. We are better than this genre, you know. If you liked that stuff back then, you're an idiot. Here's how you do it, and you do it smart for smart people because we're smarter than you. That right there encompasses so much of what I don't like about attitudes of the mid to late 90s because it it wasn't just horror films with that. It was basically just an attitude that was, uh, I'm, I'm so much smarter than you and all this stuff that you used to like back in the day. This whole cynical attitude that continues to this day and it's part of what uh, it's part of a lot of things that really came into prominence in the 1990s that not only continues to this day but continues skyfold man just just totally freaking does well like if you're if you're writing to me a novel nitpicking just i i i don't know like (laughs) i sort of blame the late 90s on all of the novels that i get nitpicking to me Stuff that uh, you know probably wouldn't get probably wouldn't get so smirky nitpicked way back in the day. Well, and I've heard some people try to defend the post scream boom as well. See, they're showing their love for all the slasher films from the early '80s, and therefore people are going to go pick up these films that they may have they may have never wanted to see pieces before. 
but they hear pieces referenced in one of these movies, and then all of a sudden, well, what do you know? The same label that put out that movie is putting out pieces on VHS, and now more people are seeing the movie that would have never seen it before. That is such a specious way to look at it, I think. No, I I think Scream may have had, you know, that honest, hey, we liked these movies. All the Scream ripoffs were like, no, Scream made money doing this, let's do the same thing. Well, because one of the big arguments I heard, and we're going to jump a little farther into the 90s for this one, after Blair Witch came out, it was clearly influenced by Cannibal Holocaust from 1980. I saw review after review that said, I would have never gone and watched this awesome Cannibal Holocaust movie if I had not been kind of turned on to this genre by Blair Witch. Therefore, no matter what you think of Blair Witch, it's good because it showed people Cannibal Holocaust. There's a difference. There's a difference between that, though. It, the different, and I liked, I liked Blair Witch Project. I, I did. There is a difference between in that, though. You don't have to have seen Cannibal Holocaust to see the Blair Witch Project. You don't have to even know that Cannibal Holocaust exists in order to see the Blair Witch Project. The way that Scream is structured, it's structured in a way that, yes, they're referencing all this stuff in that movie, but they're doing it in a way that. They're only speaking to people who have seen that stuff in the past. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing at all. I'm just saying that movie's not really made for people who've never seen horror movies before in their life because that movie's just reference after reference after reference. Worse than a Tarantino movie. And it doesn't... Of course Tarantino references stuff. I'm not saying that references are bad. Look at the snob movie. I reference stuff all all over that thing. I'm not saying that references are bad. I'm not. I'm just, there's a good way to do it and a bad way to do it. All I'm saying is that Screamed is not the type of movie that's structured in a way that's going to make somebody that, that you walk into it for the first time, you're like, wow, I'm blind to this whole genre, and now, oh my god, i got to seek this other stuff out. Scream is structured in a way you pretty much have to have seen everything, all of that stuff of the past in order to get what they're talking about in Scream. I'm not saying that that makes it a bad movie. It's a bad movie for several other reasons. <laughs> but it's not, but, I'm, but that, to me, is the difference between that and comparing Cannibal Holocaust to The Blair Witch Project. Well, and then another thing that came out a lot in the 90s, I saw this as a real dark time for science fiction. You had (laughs) so (laughs) many original and unique takes on a science fiction story in the 70s and 80s, especially in the 70s post-Star Wars. In the 90s, because because you needed the larger budgets to adequately pull off these sci-fi stories, you you had this studio mentality, just take a cop script, add ray guns, and that makes it sci-fi. Like a split second? I don't even know if I'd call that sci-fi. He was actually battling a demon from hell. I would... It's... it's, Well, but it is, like, futuristic, though. It's in, like, a... Yeah, kind of a... Not post-apocalyptic, but, like, post-collapse future. Yeah, like, post... It was, like, post-global warming. Yeah, like, I mean, it was still futuristic. It still had elements of of science fiction i mean it's it's as much science fiction i guess as like i come in peace i had loved i come in peace though that oh, is don't get awesome me wrong. I'm, not, I'm not knocking i come in peace i come in peace is awesome or but, sorry on dvd brad it's dark angel what yeah they had to change it for some they had to change the title after 9-11 when it came out on dvd because it was called dark angel everywhere except america on its theatrical release we were the only ones that got that movie as I Come in Peace. And then after 9-11, they kind of thought, well, I Come in Peace, 
you know, that's kind of the, the standard greeting that you use for a terrorist in a movie. So we, they changed it so it's released on DVD with the title Dark Angel. What? That is the stupidest, most giant leap I've ever heard for that kind of crap before. I don't mean to go on a mini tangent here. What the hell are they thinking with that? Who in their right effing mind would think 9-11 after freaking hearing that? Oh yeah, they're going to think it now because they put those thoughts in your head. Yeah, when you point it out. But Seems like plenty of alien movies where they say that. Except, like, what was something like I Come in Peace? That actually, it wasn't a standard cop script that just happened to have ray guns in it. They actually worked the alien subplot into the point where that same movie could not have played out without the science fiction elements, though, Brad. They had no, man, they, they had no right to freaking change that title, and we had a movie that year called The Two Towers. But no, I mean, I've got a, I Come in Peace under that title on Laserdisc, and I love that movie. I, I, I like that. I, this is my first time hearing about this, about that title. Wow. I don't mean to go off on a tangent. Wow. This is, I did not know that. Yeah, I, didn't, I did not make that up either, so I wish I were making that up, actually. But then the 90s also brought about your favorite film of all time, Brad. You want to talk about hubris? We think we're smarter than you? Mm. The Doom Generation. Oh, screw that movie. <laughs> Man, there's a there's a dark side to every positive wave of things and positive trends. Yeah, I you know what yeah, the indie movie craze of the 1990s was in in all terms it was a good thing. It was a positive thing. It put a lot of talented filmmakers on the map and it spawned them to make more movies. It 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 threw them into the spotlight and it did the same thing with with other filmmakers. There's a lot of stuff from that era aspects about it. You know, the whole idea of, oh my god, I can write a script, I can pick up a camera and try this, I can put some money together and do this. You know, I really do have that craze in the 90s to thank for that, but there's a downside to everything, and that downside is the Doom Generation. <laughs> and see, I, I, I've never seen the entire film. Oh, dude. I, I've made it through about halfway through, I've seen Owen Citizen's review, so I know what happens in the parts I didn't see. I mean, you're a stronger man than I. You watched the entire film. I couldn't. Man, I got the worst freaking movies recommended to me during that time because of school. I was in freaking high school. A freaking dude comes up to me. He's like, oh, man, dude, dude, you like Pulp Fiction? Oh, you got to check out the Doom Generation. You got to check out the Doom Generation, dude. Make sure you get the NC-17, man. Check that out, dude. I'm like, all right, fine. I go, that's just what I, that's what I freaking get for listening to the goth kid. So I go rent it. I about punched him in the face the next day. I've seen that movie countless times because it was one of my ex's favorite movies. And if she wasn't putting on Willy Wonka for the thousandth time, then it was f***ing Doom Generation. Well, see, to me, the Doom Generation is indicative of what about what happened after Tarantino hit. And, and like we talked about before, Reservoir Dogs was a hit. Yeah. Pulp Fiction was a sensation. Yeah. And after Pulp Fiction, everyone thought, I can do that. Yeah. And you couldn't. But, but all that stuff like the Doom Generation, I mean, like, I, well, I, I, I'm assuming Pulp Fiction is what inspired the Doom Generation. As um, filtered through Natural Born Killers. Is, yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you, yeah. Which isn't, yeah, it, you know, that might have caused some inspiration there. It's not really Tarantino's fault. I mean, like, I mean, fault in that, like, I can't get mad at him because it's not like he wrote it like he might have inspired it sure 
yeah, I totally freaking believe that, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's something Greg Araki wrote with his fractured freaking hands. Well, and let's go back to science fiction for a sec. What what you tended to see for, let's just say theatrical science fiction, the difference between science fiction and sci-fi, something like the 1995 Judge Dredd movie. <laughs> Sweet. Leaving aside the fact of the source material, that, ha- that has all of the watermarks of everything that was wrong with big-budget science fiction films at the time, doesn't it? Well, and, the goofy and the 90- sidekick, the... The, the bad one-liners, the plot that makes no sense once you think about it, all well, that stuff. That's not something that originated in the 90s. I mean, But I think it got worse in the 90s. Well, that actually kind of speaks to, at some point in the mid to late 90s, suddenly it went, suddenly big blockbusters like that. Was Judge Dredd a summer film? Yes. I think it was June or July, yeah. Okay, okay. Suddenly the summer blockbusters became... <laughs> Less just simply high concept films, less like that and more a spectacle. It became like a light show, became we're going to throw all we're going to jizz all of these effects out on screen, CGI, lights, big colors, all that. And, you know, hey, there might be a story and characters in there somewhere. That to me is just is the start of just the. Roland Emmerich spectacle film. Do you do you know what I'm trying to say? I think what you're trying to get to is it was the turn off your brain, watch the eye candy movie. Yeah, the turn off your brain, watch it, and and not even in a good way because there's plenty of movies you could have done that with in the 80s. But look at but when you look at the blockbusters of the 1980s, when you look at something like Temple of Doom or Okay, like E.T., things like that. When you look at stuff like that from the 1980s, the bigger budgeted kind of summer films like that, they're, they're still character pieces. They're still three-dimensional characters. There's still a story in there. Yeah, there's a lot of high-concept action and big set pieces. Yes, certainly there are, but it, was, but it still went hand-in-hand hand with everything else in the movie. Suddenly in the mid-1990s, around, around Independence Day probably. 96 then. <laughs> Yeah, somewhere around there, it just became, I, I can't put it in any other way, it became the eye candy spectacle film. Like, you're going to this movie to see, you're going to this movie to see the White House blow up. You're going to this movie to see New York City blowing up. You're not going to this movie because Will Smith is the lead, or Bill Pullman's in it, or Jeff Goldblum's in it. You're going to this movie to see stuff blowing up on screen. That's, so suddenly, like, Big blockbuster films just became just, you know, a light show. And I'm not saying that all movies like that are bad. I'm not saying that. I can think of a few that I genuinely like. That suddenly, that's what all summer films became. That's what all blockbuster films have become. Even to this day. Even to this, even to this day. Maybe all is a strong word, but many of Most. them. Many of them have. Well, and then you've also got something else that came about that is very good in the 90s and that was we talked about in the 80s how it was the rise of home video Uh the 90s was the cementing of home video i read something that by 1995 over 85 percent of households in america had at least a single vcr and that's Mm -hmm. when you started to see unfortunately the blockbusters and that that would put the mom and pops out of business but that's a different story but you started to see all these obscure movies start to get video releases 
And I will say it, yeah, a lot of people saw a lot of 70s and 80s movies for the first time that they probably would not have, even if they had just come across them randomly at 3 in the morning on their local UHF station. Oh, and and, and DVD helped a lot with that, too. There's a lot yeah, of Yeah, but that's not till 97, so well, yeah, I I'm, I'm just saying in general, like there's a lot of there's a lot of movies that came out on DVD that weren't out on VHS. Great like movies from like the 60s, 70s and 80s that that people saw thanks to DVD. And it's the same with VHS too. It's definitely the same with VHS. And also and this and I like this. I really like this about the 90s was the directed the, the direct-to-video. We talked about this uh some episodes ago, the, the whole direct-to-video scene. There were awesome direct-to-video examples in the 90s. There were whole franchises that, I mean, like like Witchcraft. I don't I don't even know if the first Witchcraft ever got theatrical or if that was direct to, that whole franchise was direct-to-video or not. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if, if, if how the first one came out. But, but, I mean, you had that. You had, like we talked about, I didn't know they kept making Children of the Corn movies. They just kept throwing these things on video. You also had video drop in price to the point where you, you could find a Texas Chainsaw Massacre for $5 at the checkout lane of the grocery store. You, you're buying bread and milk and, hey, let's grab Texas Chainsaw Massacre or pieces for 5 bucks. Yeah, I remember yeah. buying pieces at the checkout aisle. That's awesome. I remember <laughs> doing that to Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, when I was buying... When I started buying the this would have been the way early 90s and around then it would be 20 25 dollars probably come the mid to late 90s when i was buying like i would say on average i was buying them for about 10 bucks maybe that's yeah, I, I think i think good times home video had uh, the ballpark suggested retail was right around 9.99 for anything yeah. like good times and they had a lot of lot of really good obscure movies unfortunately my complaint with good times LP or SLP on almost all their tapes, so good luck tracking the bastards. Oh yeah, uh, and, and I, I bought a lot of stuff from Media Home Entertainment, and they were they were about ten because they, they they put out they put out some of the Elm Streets, they put out Halloween, Halloween I bought like probably around ninety ninety one, and that was that was maybe around twenty, but by the time I got like Elm Street and Elm Street two, I think Media was selling them for about ten. Well, because Media actually started with Charles Band. So I, I, th I think he, they had a lot of his sensibilities when it came to media home entertainment because he was yeah. the original owner of media. Yeah, yeah. And media put out a lot of – like uh, it was hard to find them in stores around here, but media was putting out like Matei flicks, Italian post-apocalyptic movies. I think they put out 2019. They put out SS Girls at one point. Well, and you also had – and I remember this is how I was first exposed to them – it wasn't. It was before the special edition, so it's pre ninety six. Yeah. My wife and I went into a Suncoast video. Huh. There's a time travel right there, huh? Suncoast existing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we went into a Suncoast home video, and it was for the very first time Star Wars on laserdisc. First time ever widescreen. This is awesome. I Me need to too. get into this. My first exposure to laserdisc was Suncoast video too. Oh, it was. Yeah. I re I remember going in there and being, what are these? Are these like the soundtrack albums or something? I thought the same thing. I thought it was the soundtrack at first too, but I'm like, they're like fifty dollars. That's a lot for a soundtrack. Well, it was Suncoast Video, so you could probably go across the way and find it for twenty. 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Suncoast was a tad overpriced. Suncoast was way expensive. I got it. I remember getting a tin of the Beyond at Best Buy for fifteen bucks. They also had it at Suncoast for fifty. <laughs> Not surprised at all. Yeah, the nineties. I spent a lot of time at Suncoast Video, though. I did too, man. I spent a lot of. T- I got. I got most of my VHS collection at the time at Suncoast Video, and then. When DVD hit, I was buying them more from Best Buy because Best Buy, at the time, had a lot more in regards to horror movies and the Italian horror flicks, which is what I was buying a lot of. They had trauma movies for nine ninety nine a piece. Yeah, they had trauma movies for nine bucks. I could buy Hell of the Living Dead for like nine bucks or something like that. And like I, so eventually, I just started getting most of my stuff from there. Because they were just they they had more and they were cheaper than they were way cheaper than Suncoast. Now our now our Best Buy doesn't have crap. Well, it's Best Buy. What do you expect? I want it to be like it was 15 years ago. I want the Toys R Us to be like it was back in 1988. All right, it's not going to happen. I haven't been to Toys R Us in 10 years. What the hell are you doing hanging out at Toys R Us? <laughs> Uh, I have a niece and I have a son. You can't fool me. You're doing a sequel to Deception of a Generation, aren't you? Shh! <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you brought up DVD. What a lot of people don't realize is that DVD was basically just smaller laser discs when they came out. Remember that first generation of DVDs from about 97 to 98 where they yeah. were fl- they were flipper discs? Oh yeah, and, and my Goodfellas like is like that. But, but my, my the original release of Seven is like that, and I still got my Rosewood DVD that's like that. Seven was a flip disc. Is that movie over two hours? No, it's not. But it it was it was a flipper. I, I think like once they start taking John Doe out to you know the final body, all of a sudden it flips. <laughs> there you go. Flip the disc over for the last ten minutes of the movie. Uh, the, um, the DVD of Prince of the City does that. Most of the movie is on disc one. Disc two has the last 15 minutes and all the extras. Goodfell- yeah, Goodfellas did that. Amadeus did that. Uh, a couple others I had. And also, there was there would be like ones like Cleopatra Jones, where like the menu would just be the Warner Brothers logo. <laughs> or or what, what a lot of people don't realize is, a lot of the first generation DVDs were literally laserdisc ports. Oh, they were. The, 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 uh, do you have the original release of Flash Gordon? Yes, yes, I do. There is still, and, and people are going to say I'm nitpicking, but I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that this proves my point. I've got the laserdisc as well. There is actually one frame of black during the side flip that's actually still on the DVD. So that's literally, fantastic. they just took the laserdisc mastered it and put it on dvd that's fantastic and and and, uh uh you can even tell but i uh what commentary track was i listening to it was it was a wes craven one it might have been for it might have been for elm street i was listening to a wes craven audio commentary for one of the elm streets you can tell it was recorded when they put it on Laserdisc because he's mentioning uh well one i think he says Laserdisc at one point and he also says something like Oh, yeah, I, I got to do this commentary. Then I got to get back to shooting my new movie, Vampire in Brooklyn. Uh, it's actually a little more brazen on the Assault from Assault on Precinct 13 DVD. On the commentary at one point, literally at about the half halfway mark, Carpenter says, all right, as we begin side two. 
Yes, my uh, my RoboCop DVD is a Laserdisc commentary. I can't remember if it was Clerks or Chasing Amy. One of the Kevin Smith ones, at one point he goes, Long live Laserdisc, screw DVD. And he goes, since you're listening to this on Laser... I'm like, no, it's on That's DVD, awesome. Kevin. That's awesome. Dude, dude, dude. I've got and, – and what's also better is I've got some – and these aren't bootlegs, by the way. This is legitimate freaking DVD. I've got some that are taken from VHS and put onto DVD. And you see that a lot, sure, taken from a VHS source and put onto DVD. But what you don't often see is where you can see the blue screen where it says play. <laughs> or, or, or all of a sudden, a tracking line starts creeping up yes. at the bottom of the screen. I've had, I've got a few of those. A oh, tracking line, and I'm I'm not even talking about a bootleg. I'm talking about like I believe I as an example. Uh, I believe you can find this on the Super Kung Fu box set. You yeah, tracking tracking problems. Uh, the blue screen with it saying play up in the corner. Or or obvious tape hits. Yeah yeah. Yep, I, I've, yeah, I've got some, some of the... those. Some but, of the bad Mill Creek releases are just horrible VHS transfers stuck on a DVD. Mm-hmm, I've seen those, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah, definitely. So let me ask you guys, just as a little bit of fun, what was the first DVD you got, Alex? The first DVD I got was Carrie, but I got a DVD player because they had all the James Bond movies. Okay, Brad, what was your first DVD? Does this count? Are you, are you talking... One that I bought, the first one I bought, the first, the first one, one you acquired. <laughs> well, that man, this is a stupid answer because <laughs> it came it came free with the DVD player. I got Batman and Robin. <laughs> uh, it was no, no, not even that. It 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 was uh oh, it, there were two. It was Batman. It was Batman and Robin and Lethal Weapon Four. <laughs> <laughs> Great the Warner Brothers collection, huh? Oh, not even good he... Warner Brothers movies. See, uh, mine, I, I can't narrow it down to one because I got three at the same time. The very first DVDs I got, I got through that the Columbia House thing. So they all arrived in the same package was The Mummy, Reanimator, and The Secret of Nim. So I can't say if any one of those was first, but I got all three of those at the same time. So oh, yeah, th- those got, are my first DVDs. I got three what? at the same time, but the only one I cared to watch was Carrie. The other two were, I think, Willy Wonka and... Um... Doom Generation. No, yeah, it was not Doom Generation. It was never owned that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was I can't even remember. Now, one of the things you saw on the decline, and I think this was a good thing overall, was like Brad, you brought up the big summer blockbusters. Now, some of them, like Independence Day and whatnot, did hit huge. Uh-huh. But you had other ones that didn't. Look at like Seagal's Fall. Those were meant to be big blockbusters. And they weren't. Or, you talking like uh, Glimmer Man, Fire Down Below? Those, or, or I mean, like Double Team with Double Team with Rodman and Van Damme and oh. stuff like that. These movies were not the hits that they were projected to because, be. I think that was the audience was starting to get sick of you know the big budget eye candy, turn off your brain movie at that point. Audiences started well. They weren't getting sick of that, generally speaking, because there was still, in the mid-90s is when stuff like Independence Day and stuff like that was hitting, but they were getting very cynical about the stuff that was popular in the early 90s, and that and Seagal and Van Damme falling into that. They were getting very, very, 
they were audiences were getting very 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 cynical about those kind about those kind of films what was popular in the late 80s and the early 90s with the attitude of i'm smarter than these movies i'm better than these movies i'm going to watch scream cuz it references stuff that makes me feel smart you also had like we talked a little bit about like the tarantino indie boom that came up after him and that produced a lot of crap but at the same time, that produced movies that I don't think could have been made in the 80s, for, at least the, the way they were. Something like American History X. I don't think you would have seen a movie that brutal and that hard-hitting at, least at not any time other than, what was that, 98, I think? At least not domestically. Maybe somewhere else, possibly, because well before then we had Romper Stomper. Which is Australian? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Romper Stomper's got some brutal, brutal stuff in it, too. And we talked about before how this is not really low budget, but, you know, American History X was made for only $9 million. And it only didn't even make $9 that, million? Yeah, only $9 million. That, and they kept calling it a low budget film. It's, it's Ed, Ed Norton's low budget project. There's a difference between, man, there's a difference between low budget and lower budget. <laughs> exactly. And then you also had, and I think this is one of the few times the cynicism of the 90s played out properly, you had things like Fight Club come out. That movie is pure 90s, and it's amazing at the same time. It is. That movie, that's a great freaking movie. Yes. That's a movie that when I watch it, even today, I cannot believe that that's a studio release. I can't believe a studio had the balls to put that movie out. Glad they did, because that's, a, that's one of the best <laughs> movies of the 90s. Oh, um, hands down. There, there's no no doubt about that, yeah. But that indie boom, to go back to that for a moment, the indie boom is what I hold responsible for something like the English Patient winning Best Picture. Yes, yes, a thousand Ugh. times yes. Of that, course that I do. That a cinematic sleeping pill. The, yes, I, mean, I, if, I totally blame that. That's, that's, just, that's just Harvey Weinstein in a nutshell right there. Look, I know that since the dawn of the Oscars, there have been mistakes. I know that since the dawn of the Oscars, normally the best picture of the year usually doesn't win. But because of that indie boom, suddenly it became very, very, almost like an election. Like they're treating it like a political election. Whether taking out ads, commercials, doing all this stuff to make sure that your candidate wins that. No matter whether or not it deserves it or not it's miramax so they are going to drill it into your head that that's nominated for best picture and it's gonna win even though it doesn't deserve it that's why shakespeare and love won over saving private ryan well and then you also had something in the 90s of them kind of changing the terminology which showed a shift away from where it should have been now i'm talking when i talk horror films here this is pre-scream okay you saw something like Silence of the Lambs come out in 91. They avoided in every conceivable way calling it a horror film. Yeah. It's about a, a serial killer who cuts people's faces off, wears them to escape, and he eats them, trying to catch another serial killer who's trying to make a suit out of fat women. That's mm -hmm. a horror film. It's not a detective thriller. They constantly call it. It's like at pre-Scream, horror had this stigma that oh we don't want to make a horror film it's it's a psychological thriller it's, it's a it's, detective thriller 
Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's not a horror film. It's a psychological thriller. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, th- of course, there are differences between Silence of the Lambs and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There is a difference between Silence of the Lambs and Deranged or Pieces or something like that. There is, but horror is a very, 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 very wide genre. It it it's a horror film with detective elements to it. There's tons of stuff like that. It it's just that Signs of the Lambs happens to be slightly bigger budgeted from a more mainstream director with more A-list actors in it. But if that if that same exact movie was made as a B picture, it'd be called a horror film in a heartbeat. Well, and it kind of also goes back to what caused the horror film by that point to get that stigma of oh horror films are bad psychological thrillers are for the more enlightened intelligent do you think it was that cynicism that sort of hu- that doom generation style hubris that i you know i'm smarter so i watch psychological thrillers i don't watch I wouldn't, horror films i wouldn't say that because science of the lambs was well before that happened was well before doom generation and, and that kind of attitude honestly what i would say is pro- it's probably because of the slasher film genre in the 1980s yeah, yeah, certainly a lot of rougher horror films like that had existed before, but the slashers were a lot more mainstream, were at least released a lot more mainstream. A lot more prominent critics saw them, so suddenly horror had this sort of stigma of a slasher film that were never, that were hardly ever received well by critics, and they were generally perceived as just being, you know, bad teenagers go see just for a lark and stuff like that. So by the time you have something like signs of lambs come out somebody might say like let's call this a psychological thriller because we don't want somebody going into this with the idea that they're going to be watching something like a chainsaw sequel well or even something like henry portrait of a serial killer i still see reviews all over that say this isn't a horror film it's a character drama no henry's a goddamn horror film well here's the thing it can be both you know, they're not horror. This is the thing. Horror is is a extremely wide wide genre. It's not narrow. You can have a horror film that is a that has character driven drama to it. They're not. You, they're not. You can't. It's not that it has to either be one or the other. You know, it, it isn't like you know, like it's like like oh, it's a comedy. It's not a horror film. Well, it can be a horror comedy. It can be both. So I think that that's the case. I think that that's the case too with Henry. I mean, well, not that it's a comedy, but well, yeah, I know what you mean. But, yeah. but there's there's also something else that came about. They're still doing it today, but it started huge in the '90s. Let's take classic TV shows and make them into terrible big budget movies. Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the '90s. Surely you're not thinking of the Beverly Hillbillies or the Flintstones. Oh, of those movies. I'm thinking of there's a lot that started that. Oh, there was a Leave it to Beaver movie, too. I remember that. Oh, my God. that Man, that barely made a freaking dent. That just came and went. <laughs> well, and that there, there were even surprising ones. I mean, this is going back to 87, but I never remember the old Peter Gunn TV series. I never knew that he had a theatrical flick in 87. Did? It's pretty good, too. Now, oh. I rather... T- I rather did like the Adams Family movies, though. I liked the first one. I hated the second one. I, I liked the second one either. better. I didn't care much for either one, really. I mean, they they each had their moments, I guess, but 
I mean, they're certainly better than the Beverly Hillbillies and the Flintstones, but it, 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 I wasn't a huge or fan. Or the Brady of, Bunch. Or the, oh, well, that, that, too. that one, that one, I'm not saying it was all that great, but I have a little bit more of appreciation for that one than some of the others, because at least that, I kind of like how that one went, went a little tongue-in-cheek with it. Brady Bunch, they knew what kind of movie they needed to make, not what movie the audience wanted. I, yeah, like and, and and like so that the, I think that there was there were some clever touches with that one. Not a great movie, but it, but at least like I can appreciate that a little more than say the movie version of Car Fifty Four. Where are you? You also had the rise of the video game film. I can't think Double of Dragon, a, yeah. I can't think of a single video game movie from the eighties. So video games were the thing oh, for TV good. back then. The but the one. 90s, my God, that's that was what that started, this horrible trend we're still stuck in. The first still... one was Super Mario Brothers. That was that was the first. And see, Super I'm Mario Brothers? I'm still for the sequel on that, too, man. That movie still left me on that cliffhanger all these left years. Left you hanging, didn't it? <laughs> Let's see, okay, here was my problem with Super Mario Brothers. It shouldn't have been Super Mario Brothers, and it wouldn't have been that bad of a movie. Because it was kind of no, a decent, had... you know, kind of a decent dystopian sci-fi Light-hearted comedy. It just wasn't it Mario have an Brothers. Interesting concept, yeah. That there's this other culture with evolved dinosaurs. Yeah, it just wasn't Mario Brothers. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't really that. Even even as a dystopian, weird, post-apocalyptic comedy, it wasn't funny. And also, I I got to get this out too. That the late 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 '90s started what has now become the modern incarnation of reality television. Yeah. And yeah. the 90s are to blame for that, and that's you something have... that that's something that everyone's going to have to live with for the rest of their life, and people are going to rot in hell for her. <laughs> really, Brad? Open up about it. Well, and then you also had, as well as the rise of the video game film, you also had the rise of, I mean, we, we already talked about direct-to-video and things like that, you had the rise of the, and I'm talking about a lot of stoner comedies. I mean, yeah, you had Cheech and Chong and things like that in the 70s and the 80s. I think there were more stoner comedies made in the 90s than any other decade. No, no, we, we get those all the time in the past 10 years. There's all the Pauly Shore movies and, and all, there was just stoner comedy after stoner comedy I, I think that we might have just noticed them a little bit more in the 90s because there was a lot of those in the 80s, too. And, you know, um, I think maybe two of those were actually Pauly Shore being a stoner. I think the rest of them, he was just Pauly Shore being stupid. You don't actually have to have someone literally playing or literally smoking weed on film for it to be a stoner comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also had... Now, he returned technically in the 80s, but... The real big return of the big G, Godzilla, when all those those new late 90s Japanese uh-huh. movies finally made made it to video stores here in America, you saw Godzilla start to get popular again. The toy mm-hmm. line came out. They had, and this is all pre the Devlin and Emmerich train wreck. You, yeah. you had the new toy line come out. You had the comic books come out. You had T-shirts and merchandising because Godzilla had been figuratively dead. Since pretty much the 70s, Godzilla 1985 barely made a dent. Godzilla vs. Biolanti, which was 89, barely made a dent. 
and nothing after Biolante got a wide uh, got any US release until but, yeah. but the DVD. Sale figures Alex on those Japanese imports were monstrous no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even intend I didn't even mean to do that when I when I said it. <laughs> oh, I think throughout the 90s I had at least two copies of every Godzilla movie on VHS cuz they'd sell them all in these like bulk packs. They so also like, uh three different companies had the rights because there were still some companies from the 80s that had the rights, and when they saw Godzilla was getting popular again, they re-released them. That's why you'll have the same movies put out with just different artwork for different prices. Because like, uh-huh. different companies simultaneously had home video rights to various Godzilla movies. Yeah, yeah and they would release them in these these packs real cheap. So it'd be like, well, I don't have Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, so I, have, I guess I have to put up with getting a fifth copy of Godzilla vs. Megalon. Well, and then you also saw... In the 90s, as well as that, and, and again, you've always had this, but you saw a lot more importing of foreign films. You saw a lot more foreign films come to our shores via home video or even HBO and Showtime than, than, video, you did, H- than you did prior. Yeah, HBO, Showtime, also companies like Miramax picking up rights to them and things like that and distributing them nationwide with things like say for instance like life is beautiful or movies like that you had them doing that and you also of course had companies like anchor bay in the late late 90s putting out putting out putting out like italian flicks from the 80s and the 70s speaking of the italian flicks i think those actually got more people to watch them in the 90s thanks to anchor bay before they sold out than probably ever saw them theatrically Oh, by by far, definitely. Though those films sold more home videos than I think ever sold tickets to drive-ins. I would I would guarantee that. And, and Anchor Bay was another one. They started off great, and holy crap, did Anchor Bay just go downhill once DVD came out? Well, well, for deep uh, for for the beginning there, they were great with DVD. I had a lot of Anchor Bay DVDs. With a lot of Fulci flicks, Argento movies, Bruno movies, stuff like that, Giallo flicks. They put out some really good stuff on DVD. Not really so much anymore, but now we got Blue Underground. Well, and then you've also had the special edition VHS that came out in the in the 90s. Remember those? They they would yes. usually come in the, either a clamshell and they'd, they'd be widescreen. They'd maybe have like a making of or the trailer after the movie or... There was those two tape sets where the, the movie would be tapes. widescreen on one tape, and then the second tape would be all the different trailers and extras. I loved those, Brad. I loved those VHS special editions. Oh yeah, I've got the uh, double tape of uh, Dawn of the Dead, where like the first hour and twenty minutes is on the first tape. Second tape has got the rest of the movie, and it's the extended one too. It's the one that's two hours and twenty minutes. The rest of it's on the other tape, and then it's followed by like. 80 different trailers. Like yeah, lots every- of four yes, ones. I used yeah, to I've have that, that one. Too. I used to have one of those, uh, was like Halloween's 25th anniversary edition or something that. like I that. that. Like yeah, a black yeah. clamshell? Clam yeah, big shell. black clamshell. I've got the Hellraiser one. I've got the hidden one. Um, I've got <laughs> I've got the Hellraiser one. I've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and Nightmare on Elm Street as well. Oh, see, I there just was- had... The Hellraiser was, ones I had were just the first two movies sharing the same slipcover. <laughs> there was, there was, uh, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, there was uh, a two-tape Night of the Living Dead one that I had, where the 
I think the whole movie was on the first tape, along with so, along with original trailers. Oh, the the uh, image the, the image entertainment digitally remastered one. I've got that set. Well, it was the second tape was the short film Night of the Living Bread. Yep. Yes, I I have I have that set. That yeah. Night of the Living Dead's never looked better than it did on that. Oh yeah, yeah, it looked damn good. Yeah, I've got that set. I've got a lot of those. And, and people kind of go, special edition VHS? Yeah, because most VHS were full frame. So to all of a sudden be able to get Die Hard or yeah. Evil Dead 2 were aliens widescreen, that was a big Dude. deal. Dude, the only way that I watch Star Wars is on my VHS. I've got the, this was special edition before the special edition. This was like a. It's it's in a big. It's in a big, big, big freaking box. Uh, all three movies and they're widescreen. They're the original theatrical releases. And there's like a fourth tape that's like a making of. And yeah, it's I think I've got. I just recently picked up a, a. I think it was from the '90s. The Citizen Kane huge giant box. It's yeah. got Citizen Kane tape. It's got reflections on Citizen Kane with like people like Scorsese and Coppola and Corman and that. The complete shooting script plus a hardcover booklet remembering Citizen Kane and its impact. I got Beautiful. it for $5 at a used store. They don't do special editions like that anymore. No, uh, they don't. So, Brad, the 1990s, cynical. Do you think that movies are better off overall for what the 90s gave us or not independent films yes major release blockbuster films no i'm gonna basically say the same thing yeah because independent films became way more widely accepted and you know the 90s were great for that but there's also so many bad trends that started in the 90s and blockbusters became what they are today during the 90s yeah i think the 90s was a dark (laughs) time for certain genres as much as we all, you know, like to joke, oh, Josh hates everything after '95, which isn't true, Brad. But <laughs> yeah, there's a couple you like. Yeah, there's a, there's a few. Dread, and, I, fight, I, I dread think, and Fight Club. That's it. <laughs> I do think '95 was the cutoff where you started to see things start to go downhill on the big budget level. I agree with both of you guys. The rise of the independents, they actually probably got more traction than they did in the 70s with the New Hollywood movement. I agree with you 100% on that, Brad. It was almost like New Hollywood Part 2. So where can we find Brad Jones? You find me at thecinemasnob.com. Where can we find the Marquis de Suede? Geekjuicemedia.com. You can find me at the same geekjuicemedia.com as well as 1201beyond.com and contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And if Brad's here next week, maybe we'll tackle the 2000s. And I don't have a whole lot of good to say about that. (laughs) And you open the door and you step inside. We're inside our hearts. Now imagine your pain is a white ball of healing light. That's right. Your pain, the pain itself, is a white ball of healing light. Doesn't get any better than this. This is your life, and it's ending one.
Club. If this is your first night, you have to fight. <laughs> <laughs>